0: Back up to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. We are continuing our series this morning called Don't Waste Your Gifts. And the first week we looked at not wasting our talents. Last week we looked at not wasting our time. And this week we're looking at not wasting our treasure. And in Luke chapter 19, we read the story of Zacchaeus. And it's an amazing story because it's a story of how God transforms greedy people into generous people. And uh, we need to hear the story this morning. In fact, I read a rather shocking article this past week by a Relevant Magazine that was entitled, What Would Happen If the Church Actually Tithed? And the study revealed that about 10 to 25% of Christians in the American church actually tithe. And if you're, if you're new to church, when we talk about tithing, we're talking about giving back 10% of your income to the church in order to spread the good news of the gospel, in order to care for the poor. And what blew me away was this. The article explained what would happen if people actually tithed, if American Christians actually tithed, what good could be done. And check this out. This blew me away. If every American Christian just tithed, this could happen. First of all, worldwide water and sanitation issues relieved immediately. No more dirty water. Second of all, overseas missionaries funded 100% immediately. Global illiteracy will be relieved within five years and worldwide hunger would be eradicated in just five years. And that's not to mention, there'd still be between 100 and $110 billion left over to fund additional ministry expansion. That's amazing, isn't it? To think about it. I mean, this article blew me away because think of all the good that could be done if every person that's a Christian in America would just tithe. And this article, it it, it blew me away, but it also made me really sad because it hit me. The great majority of Christians are so selfish that they consider just giving 10% to the Lord for his work is too much money. It reminded me that, you know, we hear a lot about pornography today, especially from the church. We think pornography is like the secret sin of the American church. Listen, porn's not the secret sin. Greed is the secret sin of the American church. Greed is the thing no one wants to talk about. In fact, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He's been a pastor for 25 years. He said over the years, over a 25-year ministry, he's heard people come to his office and confess all sorts of wacky, weird, bizarre sins. Everything you can imagine, he's heard confessed in his office. But Keller says this. He says, I can never recall anyone, though, ever coming to me and saying, I'm greedy, I spend too much money on myself, I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Keller says, I have never had anybody come to my office and confess that to me. Now this totally, totally, totally hits us where we live because we can so relate to that. Because greed, it's sort of like bad breath. It's the sin that you recognize in everyone else but yourself, right? That person's greedy. That one's surely greedy. You see the car he drives? You see his house? Greed is that thing. It's like bad breath. You can recognize it quickly and see it in everybody else but yourself. Because being greedy is easy. I mean, the reason it's so easy to be greedy is because money can make you pretty happy. Now, I know, just for the record, we're not one of those churches that says, you know, sin doesn't make you happy, okay, and lie to people. Because, listen, sin is fun. It's awfully fun. I mean, it would be heresy for me to stand up here and say that sin is not fun because the Bible says sin is fun. Hebrews chapter 10 says, there is pleasure in sin for a season. In other words, the Bible even says, listen, sin can make you happy for a season, for a little while. And so the reason we're naturally greedy is because we all know it's a lot more fun to have money in your bank account than to have no money in your bank account. It's a lot funner. And I know you, it's common to hear people say this, especially in love movies, you know, romantic comedies or whatever. They say, money can't buy happiness. We've heard that, right? Listen, I would agree. Money technically can't buy happiness, but what money can buy is a jet ski, okay? And have you ever seen a sad person on the back of a jet ski? <laughs> I haven't, okay? Had to put the guy up there with that big old grin. Have you ever seen a sad person on the back of a windsurfer or a kite, you know? You don't see sad people in the back of jet skis. I'm hating every minute of this, you know? No. Why is that? Because money can make you happy. Money can make you awfully happy, and that's why we're greedy, because it's fun. And that's why greed is such a universal problem among all people who have ever lived. No one escapes greed. Nobody does. In fact, some of the greatest Christians in past history have struggled with the sin of greed. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote like half the New Testament, in in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul confesses that, yep, greed is the one that got me. I mean, he was reading through the Ten Commandments one day, and he said, do not commit adultery. I'm not even married. Check. You know? Honor the Sabbath. I never leave church. Check. You know? Do not murder, that refers only to Jews, check. You know what I'm saying? He had all this figured out. He got to the one that says, do not covet, and Paul says, dang. Paul says, I wouldn't even know that I was greedy unless the Bible had said, don't be greedy, don't covet things that you don't have. And Paul confessed, the mighty Paul confessed that, listen, greed busted me. Martin Luther said this, Martin Luther is the father of Protestant theology, Luther said this, he said, the final sin that Christians struggle with and will struggle with until they die is the sin of trusting in money and possessions. He said that was the most powerful thing that gets a hold of Christians. This is Martin Luther who used to give away his wife's pot and pans to people that were poor. His wife would come home to make, you know, Chef Boyardee, there ain't no stinking pans in the house because the guy gives so much away. He says, you know what, I struggle with greed. I struggle with having too much and, and coveting too much. Even the prince of preachers, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, he lived in England uh, in the 1800s. Even Charles Spurgeon had a problem with trusting in money more than God. And, uh, you know, this blew me away. One time I read this quote from Spurge. He said this During a very serious illness, I had an unexplainable fit of anxiety about money matters. One of my friends, after trying to comfort me, went home. Gathered all the deeds and stocks and cash and gold and silver and all that stuff, brought it all back and put it down beside my bed. And he said, There, dear pastor, I owe everything I have in the world to you, and you are quite welcome to all I possess. This guy came to faith under Spurgeon's ministry. He felt indebted to uh, Spurgeon, and so he lays down everything he has next to Spurgeon's bedside. And what's amazing is that when I read this account from Spurgeon, Spurgeon didn't tell the guy, Hey, dude, don't be silly. I trust God, man. Don't be, this is, this is too much. Spurgeon didn't do that. Spurgeon actually let the guy leave his stuff. The guy went home. Spurgeon waited until he was absolutely recovered, and then he returned the cash. True story. And Spurgeon said this about that encounter. He said, God taught him this, quote, Truly the strong are not always vigorous, the wise are not always ready, the brave are not always courageous, and the joyous are not always happy. The mightiest men in the history of the church and women struggled with being greedy because greed is a universal problem. And I know the doors are locked and you can't leave and you already feel dirty at church this morning. I didn't come here to feel this way, right? You feel like this. You feel like, man, I am so greedy. I just wish, you're thinking, I just wish there was like a secret key to overcoming my greedy heart. I wish there was like a secret formula that I could take, a potion, and it would make me not be so self-centered and greedy. And I've got good news this morning good news. This text reveals to us the secret to overcoming greed. It's all right here. Amen. I've got good news this morning. The story of Zacchaeus is amazing because it reveals to us how God transforms greedy people into generous people. It's all right here. And my outline this morning is very easy, okay? Outline of his text is guilt, grace, gratitude. It's very simple. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Gratitude. First of all, let's pick it up in verse one. We're going to see the guilt of Zacchaeus. Let's look at verse one together. It says, "He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was he was rich." Let's stop right there. Let's pump the brakes. Just to kind of clue you in, if you're not familiar with the Bible and the New Testament. A tax collector during the days of Jesus was was greatly despised. And and the reason that tax collectors were despised is is because when when countries like Rome came in and decimated a foreign country and took it over and imposed taxation upon those people, the people in that country didn't willingly say, yeah, here you go, here's your tax money. They didn't do that. When Rome came in and took over Judea, the Jews didn't say, here's my taxes, thank you. No, what happened is a black market broke out, and Jews started buying and selling things on the black market. They started funneling money into offshore business accounts in the Bahamas, okay? And they started getting around the Roman occupation. They wanted to hide where the real money was because they didn't want to be taxed by this foreign government, right, that enslaved them. And so what the Romans did was this. They didn't know where the money was, so they would hire a Jewish person, a native person from that country, to collect taxes from their own people. Because who's going to know better where the real money is than a native person to that country? So they hired Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is a Jew, and Zacchaeus knows where Jewish money is, where it's being funneled. He knows where the black markets are. And so here's the deal. The Romans said this to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus? You're going to be our chief representative, and you're going to go in, and you're going to gather this much money, and any amount you, you raise or you, you extort above that is yours. You can raise as much as you want. You can actually force people to pay you as much taxation as you desire. As long as we're getting our cut, we're happy. And so tax collectors were despised because they'd come in, and they would basically, they'd come with a couple of bodyguards, a couple of henchmen, and they would say, you're going to pay us this amount, or we're going to break your legs. They were like loan sharks, and they could collect as much tax as they wanted. They had the full backing of the government to do it. They could enforce it. And so because of that, tax collectors in the New Testament were two things. They were rich, and they were despised. They were rich, and they were despised because it was a lucrative profession. Now, now here's the crazy thing, though. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector and he's actually the only one mentioned in the entire Bible. And so Zacchaeus is not just the guy getting rich, Zacchaeus is the guy with the corner office and the two martini lunches and the big baller brand sneakers. He's rocking all that because he's loaded. Okay? Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in Jericho, which was a huge business center, which means Zacchaeus has a couple of jet skis, okay? He's got a couple. He is loaded. He is filthy rich. In fact, Zacchaeus may be the richest guy we see in the New Testament. He might be. But even though Zacchaeus is filthy rich, he's not content in life. Look at verse 3. He's not completely content because verse 3 says, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. And was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Now let's stop right there again. Verse three tells us something very important here. And I know it doesn't jump off the page at us right away, but in verse three, Luke, the writer of this gospel, tells us something very important about Zacchaeus. In fact. Luke uses something in Greek called the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense is used whenever you have the idea of you're trying to do something over and over and over again without giving up. You're trying something repeatedly. What Luke is telling us, what he's communicating to us is that Zacchaeus didn't look for Jesus once and get frustrated and give up and say, well, I'll never meet him. Nah, it's not a big deal. What Luke is trying to tell us is that Zacchaeus had been looking for Jesus for some time, and he was undeterred, and he would not give up until he met Jesus. It's a very, very powerful way the Greek is phrased here. And the question becomes this. Why does Luke see fit to tell us that? What was so important that was going on in Zacchaeus' life that he was so persistent that he would not give up looking for Jesus? You know, most people in the Gospels, they look for Jesus because they had some kind of physical affliction. You know, they were blind or they were crippled or they were a leper. They had some kind of bleeding condition. People in the Gospels look for Jesus a lot of times because they have some kind of physical illness. But in this case, we don't read about anything being wrong with Zacchaeus at all. But while Zacchaeus was not seeking Jesus because he had a physical affliction, he did have an affliction that was nevertheless serious. Verse 8 points this out because Zacchaeus was a man of great wealth. And verse 8 reveals to us that Zacchaeus got rich by extorting money from people. He stole money from people, went in, said, Give me this, or I'm going to break your legs. You're going to go to jail. And so Zacchaeus got rich from stealing from people, right? And since Zacchaeus was a Jew who was raised in church, he was in Sunday school every Saturday, right? Zacchaeus was a good Jew. He knew all too well the Ten Commandments teach that thou shalt not steal. And he also knew as a good Jew that the wages of sin is death, eternal death and hell. As Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins shall die. Sin's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Zacchaeus knew all this. And he couldn't escape the fact that he had broken God's law. He had shattered God's law, and he knew the penalty. He knew the penalty for breaking God's law was was death and hell forever for his sins. And so listen, Zacchaeus did have a wound, but his wound was in his mind. He had soul pain. And listen, any of us who have ever felt the weight of conviction over our sin, we know full well soul pain is the worst kind of pain. Physical pain ain't nothing compared to the pain of a conscience that's been pricked. We feel that weight. It's like an elephant sitting on our chest. And so Zacchaeus has this wound, and that wound is in his mind. That's why he's looking so earnestly for Jesus. And I don't know, maybe you're you're, you're just coming back to church for the first time in 20 years, or maybe you're new to this whole thing, and maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, you know what, God sending people to hell because they're greedy seems seems awfully vindictive. That seems a bit harsh. I mean, it sounds almost unbelievable. But I'd remind you of this. The Apostle Paul, he said this in 1 Corinthians 6. He lists a group of people that are going to hell. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. I mean, it's right there. He lists the greedy people right alongside perverts and career criminals. And Paul says, listen, these are the people that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God because, listen, greed is a damnable sin. It sends people to hell. And the reason that greed is damnable is because greed will cause you to compromise your morals and do all kinds of like sinful and unethical things. All kinds of things. I mean, greed will cause you to sell things on Facebook and Craigslist that are like broken and defective, and you don't tell people. You just put it on there. It's an excellent condition. It's amazing. (laughs) You know, greed will cause you to steal from your employer by always texting, chatting, surfing the internet on business time. Greed will cause you to donate things to charity and embellish the amount that they cost so you can have a bigger tax write-off at the end of the year. I mean, you ever done this before? You load your car up with a bunch of stuff. You drive it into Goodwill. And they ask you, they say, give me the estimation of how much this costs, and all of a sudden the stuff that you were about to put out on the curb because it's junk, all of a sudden it's valuable. You're like, yeah, it's worth about six grand there. Yeah, like an old rocking chair and a teddy bear, that's disgusting, right? We and I know some people you're thinking, you're being, this is, this is too crazy. You're saying, come on, are you saying to me that God cares if I pull into goodwill and purposely mark things up way more than they're worth? I would say this Acts chapter 5 is perhaps the clearest place where you see how God thinks about fudging on a donation. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land, they go to church, they're like, yeah, we got 100 grand for it. They really got 200 grand. They pocket 100 grand and they're skipping down the, the aisles of the church telling everyone how generous they are, right? And God struck them both dead because of greed. Because of greed. God cares eminently if we fudge on things. Greed will also cause you to overlook unjust business practices. You know, maybe you've got the cushy job and your boss is like doing things that just there aren't right. And you want to keep the status quo so you don't say nothing. Because you don't want to lose your job. It's greed. Greed will cause you to use your, your student ID when you graduated five years ago, you know? You go to the movies and you're like, yeah, yeah. You got like six kids now, right? You're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm just finishing up my last semester. Greed will cause you to do it. Greed will cause you to knowingly buy stolen goods at a discounted price. You ever be at a stoplight and some guy pulls up in one of those white kidnapper vans, you know? And he goes, hey man, my boss bought too many speakers, bro, you want to buy us the speakers, speakers, you know these people, they pull up. And listen, I'm, I'm 39, I got three kids, but there's a part of me that's like, man, I could get some 12s in the back of this minivan for a good price, I'd be bumping, man. I, there's a part of me. But greed will cause you to do that. Greed will cause you to steal Wi-Fi from your neighbors. Someone said, come on, listen, come on. He didn't protect it with a password, he left it open. It's fair game. Listen, if he left his door unlocked, would you go on and make a sandwich? <laughs> he didn't give permission to use that stealing. He pays for that Wi-Fi and you just log on and do your gaming, you're slowing the whole stinking house down, you know? We've all got neighbors that are gamers. They hack into your internet and they slow everything down. Greed will cause you to burn copyrighted music on iTunes for all your friends. Greed will even cause you to compromise your integrity in small areas. You'll go into Sunny's or Dustin's and you'll order a water, your wife will get a soda and you'll drink off of her soda. You didn't pay for a soda. Why should they foot your bill too, bro? Because you're thirsty. I know it sounds like I'm splitting hairs but the law doesn't play horseshoes. The law never says good enough. The law says perfection, bro, or death. I know that's hard to understand, and I know I'm always trying to like re-explain this to Christians, but we don't keep the law. We can't keep it. Zacchaeus didn't keep it. And listen, this is not even to mention all the Christian duties that greed causes us to forego, like giving to the poor and taking care of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and also contributing to the church so that we have the resources here to do the ministry that we need to do. Greed causes you to forego all that, and that's why Paul says, listen, greedy people go straight to hell. Zacchaeus knows this. Zacchaeus has a wound in his conscience, and that's why Zacchaeus will not be denied, because Zacchaeus has heard the stories about Jesus, a man who has forgiven the most notorious of sinners. He's heard the stories, and he thinks to himself, if I can just get a corner with this guy, I think my sins, all of my guilt could just go away. That's why he will not be denied. And listen, one day Zacchaeus gets his chance because Jesus is passing through Jericho. Zacchaeus gets his chance to meet Jesus and he takes it. And that's where we're introduced to the grace of God. Look at verse 5. This is where Zacchaeus meets the grace of God. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, remember Zacchaeus has climbed the sycamore or fig tree, right? When he came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and Come down. Get on down here, bro, because today I must stay at your house. Now, I want you to notice something here. Jesus did not wait until Zacchaeus cleaned up his act and got a little bit more moral and dignified before he would actually eat with him. Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, hey, bro, sell your jet skis, start telling the truth, and then next week, maybe about Thursday, we'll see if we can pencil you in for a dinner. That's not. That's not how Jesus treats Zacchaeus. The invitation is extended to Zacchaeus without any merit based upon him at all. I mean, Jesus looks up and says, "Zacchaeus, we got to have dinner. We got to hang out now. Get down here now. Don't do anything else. Don't run and, and do restitution. Get down here now." Jesus, the holiest man that's ever lived, calls an unholy person into fellowship with himself. And this is amazing. This is grace. You know you're dealing with grace when you see a miracle, because that's what you see here. And as I meditated upon this text this week, it occurred to me, in the Gospels, you never see one single example of a person ever coming to Jesus, broken over their sins and being turned away. Never. Whether it's the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the thief on the cross, if they come, they're broken, they're looking for forgiveness. Jesus never says, you know what, Just I wish, but you're just not making the cut. I wish I could show you grace. I, I wish I could help you out, kid. Never does that. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Jesus does turn people away in the Gospels, but they're always the self-sufficient, the self-reliant, the self-righteous. It's the rich young ruler comes. Rich young ruler says, hey, man, how can I be saved? And I just want you to know, I've kept all the Ten Commandments, bro, from my youth. And Jesus says this. He says, man, you know what, though? I need you to do a couple more things because you need to do a little better, try a little harder. Can you go sell everything you have and then come back and we can talk? Jesus never turns away the broken Jesus only turns away the self-righteous. And that tells me Jesus does not respond to morality. He responds to faith. He responds to brokenness. Jesus didn't come for those who think they have their act together. Jesus came for those who know they don't, who know they are greedy. And friends, this is the beauty of the gospel because if this morning you are burdened, over your sins, if, you, if you're broken over your greed, your greedy heart that wants to find every possible angle to get it over on someone, if that's your heart, I want you to know if you want to be forgiven or if you're already a Christian and you want assurance that you have already been forgiven of your sins, the solution's the same. You look to Jesus with eyes of faith. There's no work to be done by you. There's no restitution that needs to be made before God will receive you. The only qualification for salvation is the recognition of your unqualification. And the minute you think you have the qualifications, you're disqualified, bro. Because Jesus came for the broken, and he never turns those away. And the way, the path to overcoming the consequences of our greed, the way we avert hell and death and damnation is through faith in Jesus alone nothing else added you're saved by faith alone and i know we've forgotten this today in the church but listen we believe in sola fide here which means we're saved by faith alone which means this if you believe that something other than naked faith in jesus is what saves you then you are a heretic that's what that means we are saved by faith in jesus and jesus alone romans 4 says this paul's quote in the old testament he says blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never hold against them, ever. How are transgressors like us blessed? Paul says, through faith. Through faith. We are blessed through faith. This is the essence of Christianity. God accepts us through simple faith in Jesus. And so, Zacchaeus, all he has to do, he's broken. He gets to Jesus, looks upon Jesus' eyes of faith. That's it, that's enough. Zacchaeus was rescued on the spot right there from his sins. If Zacchaeus broke a branch on the way down, fell down, broke his neck and died on the spot, he'd be in heaven. There was nothing else that needed to be done at all because there's no qualifications here, no conditions, no strings attached, no fine print. This isn't a cell phone plan. This is basically salvation by naked faith in the gospel alone from his greed. He comes looking for compassion and he finds it. And listen, this reality... This reality blows Zacchaeus away, because look at verse 6. Look at, look, at, look at his reaction. It fills him with tremendous joy. It says, and he hurried, and he came down, and he received him gladly. Zacchaeus, he's stoked. He rushes down. They hug, they embrace, and they start walking off to Zacchaeus's house to have dinner. They're going to hang out. And listen, here's where this text sort of changes a little bit. Because as a result of the grace that Jesus has shown Zacchaeus, the crowd turns on Jesus. Look at verse 7. When they heard this, and when they saw this, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now listen, the crowd's been with Jesus up until this point. They've been for him. But the minute Jesus starts forgiving sinners, all heck breaks loose, okay? because basically Jericho is actually a city that was full of priests. In fact, one estimate I read said that half of the priests in Israel lived in Jericho. I guess it was local to the temple. They probably had you know, a little toll road that went right to the temple. That's where they lived. And so this is a very moral city that's concerned with doing good and being generous and not breaking God's law. And listen, when Jesus shows up to this moral city full of religious church folk, and he starts forgiving sinners, all heck breaks loose. Because listen, for years, Zacchaeus has ripped these people off. All the priests drive a Ford Focus, Zacchaeus is driving a Beamer, bro, with leather seats. And they're thinking, this is not fair. This guy has ripped us off for years, and you're going to forgive him? You're going to forgive him and have fellowship with him just like that? What kind of Messiah are you? They, They thought Jesus was not a morally serious person because of the way that he treated sinners. And this is the typical response from folks that are legalistic, folks that are moralistic. They don't like it when Jesus makes things too easy for sinners. They don't like that, okay? Because they say things like that's not fair or they shout cheap grace. That's just cheap grace. You can't just forgive people. But friends, listen. Grace is not cheap. In fact, grace is the most expensive thing you've ever seen in the entire universe. Because Jesus Jesus had to pay for the grace that we receive. Grace cost Jesus his very life. Because in order to welcome Zacchaeus into fellowship, Jesus has to absorb Zacchaeus' greed. He's got to absorb his penalty for his sin. In order to truly forgive Zacchaeus, Jesus must suffer for what Zacchaeus rightly deserves. And this is the flip side of grace. This is the side of grace that a lot of churches don't talk about. But in order to be accepted by God, Jesus had to be rejected in our place. It's important to note that because it's easy to kind of think of God's forgiveness in like this really trite and shallow way and think of, you know, God's sort of like, you know, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. You broke my vase, my class, world-class vase. We'll just sweep it under the rug. Don't worry about it. Here's some lemonade. We kind of think that way. But here's the deal. God is holy, which means he's perfectly just. He punishes murderers. He punishes sinners to the fullest extent of the law. And at the same time, God is perfectly loving. And those two attributes of God meet on the cross. They kiss on the cross. And that's because biblical forgiveness is not only that God loves us, it's that Jesus paid for what the justice of a holy and righteous God demanded. Because when we sin, guys, we punch a one-way bus ticket to hell. And there ain't no revoking that or annulling that. It's a one-way bus ticket. And listen, the gospel assures us that Jesus is the one that took that ticket and got on that bus in our place on the cross. And now our bus is heading straight to heaven. Galatians 3, if you don't have a life verse yet, circle this one, here's your life verse. Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, we can receive the promised Holy Spirit through what? Through faith. Not through being generous, but through faith. And listen, the only reason, the only reason that, that Jesus could look up and welcome Zacchaeus down from that tree is because in a few weeks, Jesus would ascend another tree on Calvary. There's a great exchange taking place here. In order to forgive Zacchaeus, Jesus must bear his guilt in his place. And that's why it's been said, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an old acrostic, but I think it fits so well. God's riches, God's blessings. How are transgressors blessed? Through faith in the work of Christ. Well, Zacchaeus is forgiven on the spot and there's like this perfect storm. You don't read about it in the text, but it's here. Because there's a perfect storm that's like sort of like churning in Zacchaeus' heart right now because three things are converging at the same time. Three things here. First of all, Zacchaeus knows he's broken God's law, and he deserves hell. Second of all, Zacchaeus knows he's fully loved and forgiven by God because of Jesus. And third, Zacchaeus is witnessing firsthand the punishment that Jesus must absorb in order to be associated with him. He recognizes it all. He's walking to his house. All of a sudden, this crowd turns on Jesus, and this all hits Zacchaeus. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm unworthy, and yet I'm loved and accepted, and I'm going to heaven. And it's all because this man is suffering now in my place. He's shielding me from the wrath that I deserve. The crowd has now turned their angst from me to him. These three things converge in Zacchaeus' heart, and for the first time, something begins to bubble up inside of Zacchaeus that had never been there before. It's called gratitude. It's called gratitude, and that's our third and final point. We see the gratitude of Zacchaeus. Verse eight: Zacchaeus stopped. He just pull up. He sees the crowd react. He just stops. He's like, "Lord." Half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. This is amazing for two reasons. First of all, a notoriously greedy chief tax collector all of a sudden decides he's going to be a philanthropist. I mean, he says, first of all, Lord, I'm going to give half of my stuff away. and Listen, in the Greek it's the word huparko, it literally means I'm going to give away half of my existence, not just half of my money. He's literally going to give away half of his house, car, iPod, all the eye touch, everything I. He's giving everything, half of it away. That's the first thing that blows us away. Half of my possessions, my worldly goods, I'm giving away. Second thing that blows us away is this. He says if I've defrauded anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. This is amazing because... This is actually Zacchaeus going above and beyond, way beyond what the Old Testament required. As a good Jew, Zacchaeus would have known if you stole from someone in the Old Testament, if you stole from someone, you were required to pay back 20%. So if you stole a dollar, you paid back $1.20. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to get back four times the amount that I've stolen. Which means for every dollar I've stolen, I'm going to give back four dollars. This was unheard of. This is above and beyond what the Old Testament required. And so all of a sudden, you see this greedy man. This greedy man transformed into a generous man. And the thing that transformed him was the grace of God. The unmerited love and forgiveness of Jesus created in his heart something the Old Testament law could never create. Gratitude. Gratitude. And the gratitude for this forgiveness and this unmerited favor and grace, it just spills out and it makes Zacchaeus a generous person. And friends, this text reveals to us clearly how Christianity differs from every other religion in the world, every other religion. Religion says, wait until he becomes generous, then forgive him. Jesus says, no, we're not going to roll that way. I'm going to forgive him so that he becomes generous. Every other religion gets its backsword. Here's the deal: grace changes people because the love of God, the love of God is not find, but rather creates that which is pleasing to it. God never looks down from heaven. He's like, man, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's the guy I'm going to save right there and take to heaven. Never finds that. Instead, God comes down, dies on a cross. He says, "There." I'm going to love you like that. And out of a response, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to go way above what you wanted me to do in the Old Testament. I'm going above and beyond because grace is what transforms people. And that's why we're called Grace Life here because guilt won't get you there. Shame won't get you there. Grace is the only thing powerful enough to transform us from greedy people into generous people. You know, in fact, I read a New York Times article this week. It blew me away. Blew me away. It's about a woman who, uh, she rescued her marriage in the most unlikely of ways. This lady named Laura Munson and her husband married for 20 years. 20 years, two zero. They, they, they had it all. They bought the house of their dreams on 20 acres. They raised their children together. You know, they had this picture-perfect life together. 20 years married. One day, out of the blue, husband comes home and says this, quote, I don't love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did. I'm moving out. The kids will understand They'll want me to be happy. And Laura said, his words came at me like a speeding fist, like a sucker punch. You know, and what blew me away is uh, in the article, Laura, Laura says, I didn't respond the way that people were telling me to. You know, Laura didn't respond the way that people normally do when that happens. She didn't blow up on him. She didn't lecture him about his responsibility to the kids, to her. She didn't cry. She didn't even cry and ask him to change. She didn't use guilt, fear, shame. She didn't try to nag him into changing. She didn't do any of that. You know what she did? In the article, she said this. She said, I stuck by his side and tried to outlove him through this midlife crisis. That's what she did. And every time he would threaten to leave, she'd say, you're not serious. You don't mean that. She would just kind of downplay it and diffuse the situation and actually made him angry. He got angry. At one point, he said, I don't like the person you become. He literally said that, and she said, that was the hardest thing of all to absorb, because I had not only taken all of his worst blows, but I have been loving him through it. And Then he said, I don't like the person you are right now. She showed him one way to love, grace. and She said he kept threatening to leave, but he never moved out. He spent the entire summer being unreliable. He stopped coming home at his usual six o'clock. He would stay out late and not call. He blew off our Fourth of July party, and he went to another party instead. When he was home, he was distant. He wouldn't even look me in the eye. He didn't even wish me happy birthday. This happened, for, this went on for months, and Laura says this, I never got frustrated, I never lost my temper, I kept loving him. When the kids would ask me, what's up with dad, I would say, this happens with adults sometimes, your dad's fine. And her friends are like, "How?" Her, she said her friends got so angry, they were like, you need to call a lawyer, you need to put your foot down right now. And she said, despite everything everyone was telling her, she kept loving him, kept making his favorite meals for dinner. She kept setting the table for four. She kept planning family vacations and inviting him even when he blew them off. She kept loving him from afar. And listen to this. This part, is just, this is grace, guys. This is grace. She says, then all of a sudden one day there he was. He was home from work early out mowing the lawn. A man doesn't mow the lawn if he's going to leave now, is he? Now, not this man. Then he fixed a door that had been broken for eight years. Then he made a comment about our front porch needing paint. Then he mentioned needing wood for the next winter. Little by little, he started talking about the future. And then it was Thanksgiving dinner one night, and this sealed it. My husband bowed his head humbly and said, I'm thankful for my family. And he was back. that's the power of grace that's the power of grace and that's why Tommy and I don't jump on your willpower and guilt you into giving that's why we don't give you quotes up here about why your Starbucks run every morning is why you're going to hell because listen you've got a lot more bigger problems than Starbucks and Jesus came and died for all of those problems And your first step this morning to becoming a generous person, your first step this morning to overcoming a greedy heart that only thinks about yourself and your next SUV and your next bigger house that you don't freaking need, the only hope for that is to first of all know that you have been forgiven and you will never see the back of God's hand because of Jesus. That's the only thing that's powerful enough in the universe to make you a generous person. Guilt's not going to get you there. Duty's not going to get you there. Gratitude is impervious to exertion. But when you see the Son of God going all in for you, it will be nothing for you to go all in for Him. Because Jesus gladly bore our guilt and our shame on the cross. And nobody is more generous than the person who is greatly persuaded that God has paid an infinite debt on their behalf they never could. Friends, we are saved by the sheer grace of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray.